So if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And if you are joining us online, uh, you should be able to see this uh, scripture on whatever device you are watching. Again, Revelation 17, uh, we'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning is where we will be. We are continuing along, uh, obviously, since there's only 22 chapters. We are nearing the end uh, of our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, should get there in the next two or three months, probably, uh, as we continue to press through. Uh, some of the chapters are going to take a couple of weeks, um, but looking forward to uh, looking at uh, the end of the story, celebrating that end, uh, but knowing there's still a lot to happen. Um, so I woke up this morning with uh, like a cough that I couldn't get rid of. I don't know, many of you have probably woken up the same way. Anytime there's a front and wind blows through, I was outside talking a bunch yesterday, uh, so maybe that's, that's one of the reasons why it happened. Um, but, you know, it just one of those things that you don't see coming, but you could feel the effects of it. You know, kind of like the wind in general. You obviously don't see it, but you can feel the effects. How many of you have a, a carbon monoxide detector in your home? Okay, that's good. If not, and you have natural gas, you need to get one. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that, right? It's a, it's a good thing to have one. Um, and that's there to protect us from something we can't see, right? Uh, and that's why it's there, because we can't see carbon monoxide in the air. You really can't tell much of it if it's there to begin with, so you need something else to point that out to you. It's a, it's a hidden danger. Uh, it's a, uh, as, as they might say on one of those um, uh, kind of uh, exasperating newscasters, it is a silent killer. Uh, you know, and they talk about those sorts of things. There's, there's other things that are silent killers. You know, some illnesses you may have that don't show up with, with tests or, and, and suddenly are just upon you and you can't do anything about it. Doctors talk about those. People on newscasts talk about those. But the idea that something out there is going to get us or is working against us that we can't see, that's frightening, maybe, to you. Maybe you don't care, uh, but it's at least a little unsettling, I think, to most people. Uh, the thought that there might be something there you can't see that's working against you. You know, when you get that feeling that someone's watching, uh, or you get that feeling that there's just something wrong with the situation, you might not know what it is, you can't put your finger on it, but it just feels like something is, is off, that there's something going on that you can't see that you might not even be able to describe perfectly, but it's going on behind the scenes that just isn't right. What if I told you that that sensation is 100% correct every single time? that there is always something going on under the surface that isn't quite right, but it's not what you think it is. Uh, it's not some boogeyman hiding in the corner looking to get you, but it's something that's invisible, that's always at work around us, seeking not our good. God is around us always through his Holy Spirit, invisibly seeking our good. I do believe that. But that there is another force invisible around us all of the time that is seeking our ill, not our good. Seeking to harm us, seeking to work against the purposes of good, to resist the kingdom of God. What if I told you that that is indeed exactly the way things are? Scripture kind of speaks to that reality throughout the totality of it, that we have an enemy. He shows up at the beginning, he's here again in the end, and he is always at work in between. He's called many different things throughout Scripture, but he's certainly present and active. Peter calls him a roaring lion, seeking to devour whomever he may that we have an enemy is without a doubt in Scripture. It's something that perhaps we don't talk about nearly enough in our world and in our churches today, but is no doubt a reality. John, as he writes the book of the Revelation, does not run from that reality. He understands it. He gives the characters names. 
We've been talking about those characters in the last several weeks that we've been looking through Revelation. Really, the whole study has been about those characters to some degree or another. But starting like in Revelation 12 uh, and then moving on from there, we have different characters introduced. Uh, The dragon that's chasing the woman and trying to devour her son and then the offspring of her son and then the two beasts, one from the water and one from the earth uh, that kind of represent the dragon and his interest and seek to turn people towards the dragon. The Antichrist and the false prophet, they're often called kind of representing this anti-Christian kingdom, right? Uh, this, this fake mockery of everything that the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. Whereas in the kingdom of God, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father who is supreme over all, sovereign over all, creator of the universe, three in one with the other two members of the Godhead, sending himself as his son, Jesus Christ, into the earth for the salvation of sins. And then when Jesus ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father until the judgment come, he also sends the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who comes in his fullness on the day of Pentecost in, the, in, in Acts chapter 2 when the, the Holy Spirit just engulfs the church. And from this point forward, we have the Holy Spirit living with us, not that he hasn't been active before he was and is active throughout time but we have him in a new sense since Jesus ascended into heaven and sent him in his stead he is the helper that Jesus promised in John 14 and we have these three wonderful members of the Godhead working in concert together for the good of the kingdom of God and for the good of those who are called by God according to his perfect purpose and love God as Paul tells us in Romans 8 And then, again, John shows us this flip side. We have the dragon. We have the two beasts, the false prophet who seeks to, in an anti-Christ kind of way, fake what Christ did. We learned earlier in the book of Revelation that this beast had a mortal wound upon his head that was healed, seeking to mock what Jesus did in being murdered and then resurrected from the grave. And then the other beast is going around performing signs, mockery of the Holy Spirit in the same way. And so we kind of have John setting up this anti-Christian kingdom, and we've been talking about that. But now in Revelation 17 and 18, which I don't want to oversell the point. I said this in the first service. I don't want to oversell the point. But in my reading and in my estimation, chapters 17 and 18 might be the very heart of the book of Revelation. It might be where we, we, we get fully revealed to us what is actually going on in the world. What has gone on, what is going on, and what will go on in the end. Whereas if Revelation is indeed an apocalypse, and that's the Greek word that is actually the title of this book, the apocalypse of John or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that means an unveiling. We talked about that on the first Sunday that we opened this book. An unveiling, somebody pulling back the curtain, like at the end of The Wizard of Oz, when you realize that uh, The Wizard of Oz is not some great, you know, fearsome character, but rather just some guy behind a curtain speaking into something that amplifies his voice. Uh, When we are revealed to the truth, we see differently. And what John is doing all throughout Revelation, what God is doing through John, is revealing the truth about what's going on, the battles between good and evil. And what we see in Revelation 17 with an introduction, not an introduction because she's already been mentioned a couple of times, but an exposition of a new character in Revelation 17 is an unveiling of how these forces are ultimately manifest in the world today in a character named Babylon. And when John describes this character named Babylon, we're about to read the passage together, he does so in a satirical fashion. John is, in part, a satirist. 
Uh, what that means is he, in part, pokes fun at and pokes holes in and, and, and sets in the right place the things in the world that seem fearsome, the things in the world that seem evil and unconquerable. John is, is ready to show the Christian body that is scattered throughout the Roman Empire that their God is above all of those things. And like any great satire, it pokes fun at that which is powerful to bring it down a notch and to set it right. If you're familiar with satire, such as political cartoons or something like that, you know that they exaggerate certain parts of different characters, and then they'll, you know, like a political cartoon, you might draw a picture. Uh, you, you have an elephant and a, and a donkey to represent the two um, main parties in the United States politic, political world. You have Uncle Sam can be drawn, and then you have several other different characters that can be drawn for other countries. Uh, and when a a political cartoonist draws those things, he highlights certain portions, or he does things that are uh, not true to life. They're, they're out of the ordinary. They're, they're, they're beyond imagination, right? And to make it, 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 it say what he's trying to communicate about this reality, and to poke fun at it, to show that it's not the big baddie that you think it is. And that's kind of what John is doing here, as he talks about Babylon. Now, political cartoons, I don't think I could be wrong. Uh, I don't think existed in the days that John is writing. There could have been some other drawings similar to that. But John tries to draw a word picture and give us an image. The image even has a title, uh, as we're about to see. And so as we read at least, especially the first half of chapter 17, I want you to kind of try to picture it in your mind's eye what John is describing. Because what he's really describing is something that on surface level is controlling the world. Most people might see it that way anyway. It is the overriding truth in the world, at least from a worldly perspective, uh, around which we build everything, and everything relies on Babylon. We're going to see that in the next two chapters. So it's this big, scary thing, but John tries to bring it down a notch by describing it in some pretty ridiculous ways. Okay, so I want you to kind of see that as we read it together here in just a moment. We're going to break this up. It's a longer chapter, uh, so I'm going to read it in, in three different portions. We'll start with the description of Babylon, and then we'll move on as John is actually told by the angel uh, what Babylon itself represents. Let's pray together before we do that, though. Father, once again, we thank you for this morning and for your presence here with us. God, we know that you are at work always that you are at work right here in this very room, seeking to, through your good and perfect word, communicate truth to all of us, to everyone hearing these words. Lord, I pray that your word would depart from my mouth and from this book and not return to you void, as we know that it never does. God, that your word might transform us. Hey God, and in allowing your word to transform us. God, may you bind the enemy. May you bind all distraction and busyness. And may you allow us to see what you're revealing to us this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 17, we'll start with the first six verses. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, 
with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So after these seven bulls of wrath have been poured out and we're told about the coming judgment of God, it's, we pull back and we look at things from a different angle once again as we have throughout the book of Revelation. And John presents this character that he's only mentioned a couple of times before that is known as Babylon the Great, a great prostitute who sits upon a scarlet beast, adorned with all sorts of expensive material and holding a golden cup, again, seeming on surface level to be this powerful, rich being. But the cup itself is full of abominations. She herself is a prostitute. You see the satire of John peeking through. And one thing that I can't help but get over is the metaphor that John has been using. And I'm wondering if he's extending it even further here. I say metaphor, I should say comparison, really, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Antichrist. Because again, in the kingdom of God, we have had presented to us throughout Scripture the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then as things move along in the New Testament, we see that Christ chooses to work through his body, a group of people, the fellowship of the saints, the church of Jesus Christ, in the New Testament and into our current era. That Christ can work in, in many ways through his Holy Spirit. He can rise up rocks if he wants to. But for whatever reason, in large part, Jesus has decided to, in our current understanding, work through the church. To do his work of loving the least of these through you and I as the hands and feet of Jesus. To do the work of making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through you and I, through the church of Jesus Christ. To do the work of bearing one another's burdens and fellowshipping with one another and, and, and loving one another in an unconditional agape sense to have that brotherhood and sisterhood. God is doing that today through his church. And this isn't some institution or some building. This is the body of God. This is the people of God through which Christ is doing much, if not all, of his work today. It's how God chooses to act in the world today. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit manifesting themselves, communicating themselves to the world at large through the church. Through the church that is in the, whole, in, in the New Testament called the Bride of Christ. As a matter of fact, John even uses that metaphor in chapter 21 that we'll get to eventually. Uh, as, as the bride is adorned for her husband on the wedding day, on the day when everything is made right when the new Jerusalem and the new earth are made and God finally consummates and fulfills all the promises that he had made between he being the bridegroom and his church being the bride. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a loving relationship with the bride of Christ, allowing the bride of Christ to be the message bearer to the world. But with the unholy trinity, with the anti-Christian trinity, we have a very different picture. We have the beast, we have the false prophet, 
We have the Antichrist to set him in incorrect order. We have the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet at work in the world, mocking God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And then at work through the world, through a system of things that we'll talk about here in a moment as the angel explains to John what Babylon really is. But through a system of things we called, we we're calling Babylon in this case, who is depicted as the mother of all prostitutes. In the Christian kingdom, it is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working through the bride of Christ. In the anti-Christian kingdom, it is the beast, the dragon, the, 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 the antichrist, and the false prophet working through a prostitute. God treats his church like a bride. Satan treats his minions like a prostitute. It is a very different picture. It is one that turns the biblical example of God's nurturing relationship with his church on its head. A prostitute is used. A prostitute is not nurtured. Satan uses those who seek to do his work, who seek to follow his way, who, according to the, the nomenclature of what John is saying, wear the number of the beast upon their head are sealed in the anti-Christian kingdom rather than the Christian one. And these are the two kingdoms that we have set up. And John, again, is using the word Babylon to represent that anti-Christian kingdom. Babylon, for us, you might wonder what that means. You might think, well, that's a, you know, an ancient city in the, in the uh, ancient part of the world. You know, they had some gardens and some other things that you might think of when you think of Babylon. But Babylon, from a biblical perspective, is like the worst like, it's, it's the worst city on earth. Uh, it's the worst people on earth. It is representative of all that's wrong with the world. It's representative of, of oppression and violence and evil and debauchery. It's representative of all that because it was Babylon that stormed into Israel and took the people into captivity. Babylon is seen as the great enemy, one of the great enemies of the Old Testament, and kind of the great enemy of the people of God. So it's no surprise that John would use that city to talk about this force on earth. And so we're left wondering at this point, as John is, marveling greatly, wondering what this woman, this prostitute, represents. Now the angel, who had one of the bowls, but is now talking to John about this Babylon character, says, why are you marveling? He's about to. And he begins to explain what it represents. This is one of the few places that happens a couple other times in Revelation, where we are told immediately what a symbol means. Here's the bad part about this one, though. Even the symbolism itself is a little bit confusing, and we don't know exactly what John is being told. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, but uh, again, we have this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. The beast has seven heads and ten horns, and now the angel tries to describe to John what the woman and the beast mean. <clears throat> this is verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven, seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to be, about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does he come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it also belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, 
who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful." So again, we have the symbol explained, but explained in ways that still seem pretty symbolic, symbolic or, secure or, or, or obscure to us. John is told by the angel who's explaining all of this that the, the beast has seven heads and, and, and ten horns, and, and that the beast with the seven heads represents the city, or not, excuse me, represents seven mountains. Now, to anybody in John's day, they would have known immediately what he was talking about because Rome was known as the city built on seven hills. That was this actually geography. That was part of the history of Rome, is that it was built on seven hills uh, in, in its construction. And so it was known, again, as the city of seven hills. So John, once again, as he already has earlier in Revelation, points at Rome. And he's equating Rome with Babylon, this great force in the world, this, this invisible thing through which evil works in the world to seek to do its will and to resist the goodness and plan of the kingdom of God is present within Rome itself. Now, it shouldn't be surprising. There was so much about Rome in the first and second centuries that are anti-Christian. They were, they were themselves, before Constantine at least, anti, very anti-Christian to the point that they were killing them left and right. Uh, they, were, they were making sports of killing them in the Colosseum. Uh, it was all sorts of things anti-Christian about Rome in its heyday. So it shouldn't be any surprise. But it is not Rome itself. It's something that's behind what's going on in Rome. Because John says a couple of times, or he's told by the angel a couple of different times, that the beast is something that was and is not and is to come. It was and is and not yet. Uh, this idea that it doesn't exist in a particular, only one set period of time, but it exists throughout time, in the history, in the present, and in the future. Again, showing that this invisible force that is always at work in the world. And then we have the description of, of the heads also, uh, meaning seven, seven kings, uh, seven rulers, and the horns themselves, meaning ten other kings that have not yet raised to power. And this can get really confusing, and it's one of the places we can get lost in the weeds. And to be honest with you, if I were to sit and try to name who these characters are, it would be pure conjecture on my part. There might be somebody who has cracked the code that can tell you exactly who these people are, but I really kind of think that's beside the point. Some have tried to think that the seven heads are seven Caesars that reigned during the Roman period. Uh, the ten horns were ten rulers or ten empires that would exist after the Roman Empire. I can see why somebody might go to that conclusion, but again, I'm not smart enough to understand that if that's exactly what's going on. Instead, I want to look at the roundness of the numbers, the symbolism of the numbers. Seven is the number of completion, and so we're seeing kind of the complete picture of this invisible enemy and those who would rule in his stead those who would kind of lead the way in an anti-Christian sense. As we talked about when we talked about the Antichrist himself, there will always be powerful people in charge of powerful organizations or countries or uh, empires, whatever it might be, that are putting themselves up as God, the answer to all the world's problems, and seeking to dethrone, maybe not purposefully, but by their own pride and arrogance in pursuit of power, seeking to dethrone God from his place on our heart. 
to the throne of our heart, the throne of our mind, the throne of humanity, seeking to move God to decenter him as the one true God and make themselves God. That force will always be at work, and we see that in rulers throughout history. And I see the same thing in the ten horns. Ten is kind of more of a number that symbolizes militaristic might on the earth. Uh, And so again, you kind of see this this man-made version of power that kind of works in concert with the beast itself, with this force of Babylon seeking to resist the kingdom of God. And John describes all of this, or he has it described to him, again, as this great enemy and what I hope you're seeing, really, I would encourage you, you do it now or when we're done with the book, whatever it might be, to sit down, and I, it's, it's kind of long, so maybe not one setting, but in a couple of days at least, just read through the book of Revelation all in, in, in as much as one sitting as you can do. And allow it to build. Because I think what's happening in 17 and 18 is John has been saying there is good and there is evil. Good is Jesus. Evil is of the devil. Now in 17 and 18, I'm going to show it to you right where it's at. And it is at work in the heart of the Roman Empire. It is at work in the worldly forces and kingdoms. And it is seeking to dethrone God from your heart. He's telling that to a group of people who are right in the middle of the Roman world who are persecuted by the Roman world, who are tempted every day to worship Rome and their Caesar rather than God and his kingdom. That is the battle going on behind the scenes in John's day, a battle that's still occurring to ours in our day with different characters. But I also want you to notice in that last scripture I read before we took a break in verse 14, that these characters will make war on the lamb, but don't forget, the lamb wins. There are ten kings and seven kings that John is told about by the angel, but he is reminded in verse 14 that the Lamb, who is the Lord of lords and the King of all kings, will be victorious when the day of battle comes. Again, this is satire. This great beast, this great enemy that's invisible in the world, that is behind all that is bad, all that is wrong, that is behind every atrocity that's ever happened, behind every sin that's ever happened, that enemy, he is indeed fierce, at least from our perspective. But when compared to Jesus Christ, he is nothing. He is nothing. There is no resisting the perfection of the power of Jesus Christ. And this lamb who is the lion will devour that line who seeks to devour everything else around him. There is one true line, and that is the line of Judah, not the line who is the king of the air, who is seeking to wreak havoc in our world today. We are reminded of who's going to win in the end. But it does us good today to recognize that there is indeed a battle going on. All around us, all the time, everywhere, every day. Let me finish the chapter. Verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated and people are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handling over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw, and this is in quotations in my ESV, 
is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. John is here to tell us through the revelation that this is not one place where this happens. He says the waters that you saw are many peoples and nations and multitudes and languages. This is a global phenomenon. This is a timeless phenomenon. From the advent of sin, from the moment that Eve's teeth pierced the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, there has been a force work in the world that will not stop until Jesus consumes it at the end of time. It exists everywhere, all places, throughout all times. It sits on many waters. It is the manifestation of evil in the world. How the dragon and the beasts wreak their havoc. But I want you to see the end of the story for the woman, the great prostitute. What happens? In the end, the beast turns on her, right? The kings of the earth turn on her. The seven heads and the ten horns, they devour her flesh, it says. And this is the end of one who pursues the ways of the world over the ways of God. Again, you are the bride of Christ. The opposite is the prostitute of Satan. You will be used up if you go after the world. You will be destroyed. Look at her. Again, if you go back and you read the description, there's all kinds of these wonderful, rich-looking accoutrements that she has. She's wearing all of these jewels and holding a golden cup, but the golden cup is full of abomination. She's drunk on the blood of the saints, it says. Have you ever been around somebody that's really drunk, and I mean really drunk, that looks like they had dignity in the moment? I know a few of you have been around drunk people before, and I know that there's not much dignified about that. Can I get an amen from somebody or an oh me in the house? I know it's church. We don't talk about those kind of things, right? I'm not an idiot, though. I know you've seen that. And I know that there's nothing dignified about the stupor that comes with being really drunk. I'm not talking about buzzed. I'm talking about being really drunk. There's nothing dignified about that. You can read it on someone's face. And perhaps you've had not the pleasure but the horror of seeing someone who's addicted to alcohol or addicted to drugs in the middle of a days-long binge. There was nothing dignified about that. It is a pitiful, pitiable view of someone. Some of you, I know I've seen that in your life as well. This is the woman sitting on the back of the beast. This isn't some rich celebrity kind of thing. This is the world for what it is, a drunk prostitute who will one day be destroyed by the very thing that she claims to pursue after. That is the end of the world. That is the end of all who pursue things apart from God. So here's what I want you to see. And here's what I think John was trying to do in Revelation 17. He's been telling the story this whole time about God's coming judgment, about the forces of good and evil. And now I think he's fully pulling the veil back. This is the big reveal. And he's saying to all of us who care to listen, anyone who has an ear to listen, wake up. Wake up. Do you think you're just going to work and coming home every day, watching your shows on Netflix, vegging out to TikTok or 
Twitter or Facebook or whatever, doing the things that you've always done, maybe playing some video games or looking at news and the talking heads on the channel that tell you what to be scared of and what to be worried about. You listen to stuff when you're in the car, maybe it's the radio, maybe it's talk radio, maybe it's more talking heads, and you think you're just kind of going through the motions and this is what's happening and that it's all that you can see. Do you really think that's all there is? Do you really think that's what's going on? Don't you realize there is so much more than what you see at stake? There is so much more than what you see that's actually going on that we don't have the eyes to see what's really going on behind the scenes, at least not yet, but there is definitely something going on behind the scenes that from the foundations of the world, from the moment that the serpent tricked Adam and Eve in the garden, from then there has been a battle raging, and it will rage until one day when the lamb, who is the lion, ends it once and for all. He will be victorious, but today the battle still rages. And who do you belong to? Do you belong to the bride of Christ or to the prostitute of Satan? You don't get to choose the middle. There's no Switzerland option in this one. You have to choose one or the other. Do you belong to Zion, the city of God, who will go on forever and ever and ever, Revelation 21 and 22? Or do you belong to Babylon, who, spoiler alert, is going to get destroyed in the next chapter, and there's going to be a party in heaven when it happens? Which one do you belong to? Because there is a force at work in the world around us. It is that thing that tempts you away. You think to yourself that you're unable to kick your pornography habit just because you're a bad person? Man, baloney. The reason why you're unable to kick it is because there is a force in the world dead set on destroying you. Destroying you and your marriage and your home and your job and your Christian witness and will do everything they can, everything they're allowed to, everything that God allows them to do, they will set to destroy you. There is a force at work in the world that has always been doing that. It's not because you're an exceptionally weak person. It's because, yes, you're a sinner, just like, spoiler alert again, everybody else on the planet, we're all broken, we're all messed up, and the devil wants to devour every single one of us. Chew us up and spit us out so that we might be the next Christian person who has lost their witness, for whom there is no hope. Guess what? Nobody exists for whom there's no hope. Nobody exists for whom the power of God cannot overcome. That weakness or addiction that you might have, that is in your flesh. In the power of God, there is no weakness, there is no addiction that cannot be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no temptation common to man that God has not yet seen that he cannot overcome. Because there are two cities, the bride of Christ and the whore of Satan. And that's the option that we have. Who will you chase after? Who will you be? Because every day, every moment, you have a choice. And I'm here to tell you that sometimes I choose the comfort of Babylon. Because Babylon is oh so comfortable in our world today. If you want to know how the prostitute of Babylon shows up in our world today, I think it is primarily through the lens in the American 21st century of comfort and ease that tells you not to worry. Everything's okay. Just get you, just get yours for you and yours. Make sure you're taken care of. Make sure you can find a job that's bearable, that you can get a 401k so that you can have some stuff at the end. The stuff is what matters. And then you can come home and then you can rest. And what do we do? We 
we blind ourselves, we numb ourselves with constant entertainment, always looking at a stinking screen instead of thinking about what's going on behind the scenes. May we see the world for what it really is. It's not merely molecules bumping into one another, causing chaos. There is a force behind it. It is the dragon, the devil of old, Satan himself, who seeks to kill and destroy and lie about every single one of us. And we can give into it because there's comfort there, at least for the moment. The lie seems good when we don't know the truth. We can give in to the prostitute of Babylon. Or we can resist. And that's not easy. Look, Jesus has already done the hard stuff, right? He's done everything that needs to be done for you to experience salvation. But what he wants from you is a daily relationship. He's already justified you and secured your place in heaven. But today, to keep you from being used by the enemy or distracted by the enemy, he wants a daily relationship. He wants to talk to you every day. He wants to speak to you every day. And if you're not putting this truth in here, you're going to fall for the law when it comes. And you're going to give in to the comforts of Babylon while they wreak havoc on a world that doesn't have the security that you have. Did you know, church, every day when you go to work or school or the grocery store, you are literally, this isn't a joke, this isn't an over-exaggeration, you are literally surrounded by people whom this book and even this particular book, the book of Revelation, would tell us are lost and going to hell. Every day. And Babylon, it's just another day, right? That's just another little piece of news. Let's not get too worked up. In Zion, we will not stand for that. In Zion, we will tell people the truth. In Zion, Jesus will be proclaimed. Oh, I'm ready when I can live in Zion forever and ever and ever. The city of God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, descending from heaven, recreated in the perfect earth. Oh, I'm ready for that day. I'm ready to get to chapter 21 and 22. I've told you all that before. But right now, we're right in the middle of 17. We're right in the middle of an invisible enemy. And you can make the choice as you leave this place to just act like the enemy doesn't exist and go on about your business and live your life the way you always have. And maybe you'll be saved. Maybe not. Who cares? It's not a big deal. Or you can make the choice to take this seriously and to realize that you, sons and daughters of God, are the front lines of the kingdom of God on earth today. And that God has put you, his bride, his body, his church, exactly where you are right now so that he might, through you, proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
so that he might through you fulfill the great commandment to love God with everything that we have and love others as we love ourselves and the great commission to make disciples of all nations that God might put you in that position that with him in you you can defeat anything in the world that he will destroy all that is evil that is in front of you in the world he wants to use you as his army I know sometimes we shy away from the militaristic language in the church today but that's okay it's a good metaphor right here because there is a battle going on it's not something that is going to happen it will in the ultimate sense but it is going on today will you fight it for the sake of Jesus will you fight it for the sake of your family for your children for your spouse will you fight it for the sake of your friends and your co-workers will you fight it for the sake of your countrymen for the sake of the people who live in the same town and community that you do will you fight it for the sake of the lost because I don't want one more soul to end up in Babylon that has to I want as many as possible to be with us in Zion singing holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty forever and ever and ever I want that to be the multitude that I'm a part of not this fake anti-christian prostitute of a thing that exists in the world to take glory from God I want to give it to him forever and ever and ever and daily I must make that choice daily I must make that choice daily you must make that choice you can pretend like it's not real but that is pretense and nobody wants that don't give in to the comfort don't give in to the pretense fight with Jesus through you through prayer through his word through testimony fight 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 one day the end will come and when it comes we will be with him in glory but until then we fight amen I think I'm done, but my voice is about to give it anyway, so I think I'm really done. As we enter into a time of invitation, I don't know what you need prayer for, <clears throat> but I encourage you to seek God's face during this time. If you need prayer for strength for the battle, if you need to repent for giving into the ways of Babylon, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, and you would like to for the first time today, you would like to be freed from the systems of this world and be promised an eternity with him and an abundant life today, I can pray with you in that direction. I can pray with you about anything else. You can come at the altar and pray at the steps. You can pray with someone around you. You can seek to ask questions of Christians that you know. But I'll be down here to pray with you about this or anything else during our time of invitation. I'll hang around after the service if you want to talk or pray then. But let's stand together. Ethan's going to lead us in one more song. And as he does, you move in whatever way God's calling after I pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for your presence here with us today. God, we thank you that you are victorious in the end. That we can trust if we follow you that we will end in victory. That you will nurture your bride. God, may we see the world as it really is. May we see what you've revealed to us today. May we resist the prostitute, the beast. May we resist the evil one. And may we turn to you for all that we need. And then, God, may we be a people who proclaim this truth to a world who needs it. God, use us. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen.